It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Hi, welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith, and I am here with our guest today, Jennifer Iverson, the official the official bio she sent me is Jennifer is the lead content strategist at Mops International. She is an organizer of things and people, which comes in handy as the mother of six children. Jennifer and her husband, Mike, live in central Pennsylvania, where you can always find a warm cup of coffee brewing. The unofficial bio, I told oh, no. her I was, I told her I was <laughs> going to do a little off-roading here. Jennifer and I became friends how many years ago? Uh, almost 15, almost 15 years ago. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And she is a very good friend who used to live here in Montana. And then she absconded to the East coast amid my protests and, uh, her family, she has like 32 children and, and you just read it in my bio. There are only six. There are only six children. Okay. Well, (laughs) our kids were very close and our families were very close and I miss her a lot. And so it's fun to be able to catch up in this format, but also catch up in life. So Jennifer, tell us a little bit about yourself, what your bio didn't cover, and um, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, man. Well, um, I think you and I have bonded a lot over the fact that we were both adopted and um, that I have um, also have adopted siblings. So I think that was... uh, a part of our story that we've, we've shared together. Well, man, tell me more than my bio. I mean, sometimes you feel like your life is totally consumed between work and kids. Yeah. Um, How old are your kids now? Oh, the oldest one is 24 and married. Um, and the youngest is almost 15. Um, and so I, I tell people, yes, that is six kids. No, there are no twins. And yes, I am very tired. <laughs> They're they a lot of work, but a lot of fun too. So um, I think, you know, it, I will say this, my last three are in high school. We have um, just a few more years until they are all out of the house. And I'm kind of looking forward to the fun that happens at that point. Yes. Yes, it is fun. I I enjoyed having a house full of teenagers and kind of the craziness and they were just fun because their personalities were coming out. I will have to say at the risk that my children will listen to this, I will have to say that the young adult age for me has not been the most fun. Mm -hmm. I I have loved seeing their personalities and their life choices and everything, but it's just like they're still forming their wise decisions and they're independent and making their own decisions, but you have less say in it. So that has uh-huh. been, um, that has been, a and you don't experience. really get to enact um, consequences once they reach that age either. I know. <laughs> so I, know. I want yeah. to, <laughs> I know like, no, don't do that. And yeah. yet, and yet, you know, that they're going to learn the best when they discover that on their own. 
So, yes, unfortunately, as we, all as do. we did. I've got mm-hmm. I've got children getting married, and I'm trying to tell them that I wasn't married that young, and I was older <laughs> for my age, and all of these things, none of which they believe. So, I know, I know, it's so true. So tell me a little bit about how you were raised faith-wise, spiritually. So I was raised in a Christian family, um, Christian being such a broad, um, broad term, I think, but raised very conservatively. Um, I was part of the uh, Plymouth Brethren sect of um of Christianity, I suppose you could say, no pastors. Um, it was all sort of uh, congregational led. Someone would speak um, uh, music, whatever. Um, so very conservatively for for many of my younger younger years, um, and that I think that particular. Um, set up for church was not something that was easily sustainable financially long-term. Um, so for the church or for your family? For the church, okay. for the church, because um, while overhead was low, you know, you weren't paying a pastor. There also wasn't one particular person that was responsible for making sure that things happened. And so I think it just in life in general, um, but very much like dig into your Bible, learn, um, you know, read, train. I mean, if church was open on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, you were there, (laughs) that kind of, kind of, um, atmosphere. Um, yeah, and and even chose to go to a Christian-based college um, simply because I wanted to still be around people of similar faith. Yes. So one yeah. of my favorite one of my favorite things that you've said about your college experience is that you went to an engineering school and they were talking about talking about making a better toaster and you thought I don't need to make a better toaster. I'm fine with the one that we have. (laughs) I am fine with my, it's true. I, I went to college with the intent to get a degree in engineering because, you know, when you're in high school and everybody says, what do you want to do? I was like, I don't know, but I'm good at math and I'm good at science. And so I guess engineering is the way to go. And bonus, I went to a Christian college where at the time that I started as a freshman, it was one girl for every 10 guys, which is like the total opposite of most Christian colleges. So my odds were in my favor there. I mean, I I went for an engineering degree and got my MRS degree instead. And yes, perfectly happy. (laughs) Met this crazy guy from the middle of no middle of Montana. Yeah. Who rancher wanted to be a pastor was an engineer. At one point, he said he wanted to build roller coasters. I mean, he is truly like a a visionary and a go get 'em. And I am the like planned. Let's think it through. And so um, God, God knew what he what he was doing, putting the two of us together. We needed each other to balance out. Yeah, boy, isn't that always the truth? Oh, very much. So very tell, much. Tell me a little bit about the Woodhouse family, your your <sighs> your family that you were adopted into. Yeah. So we mentioned that as far as me being adopted, my husband jokes that um, uh, 
uh, well, first of all, there are eight of us children in this family. It is a large family. Um, and my husband jokes that we were all international adoptions. There's um, two children that were adopted from Korea. They are not related in any way. We adopted one and then a year and a half later adopted the other. Um, and there are a sibling group of five from Costa Rica. Um, and, and then I was born in New Jersey. So, you know, all international adoptions. Um, <laughs> I was, I was an only child for 13 years. And, um, I can very clearly remember asking my parents, um, for sibling, you know, that's, I think that's a standard thing for kids to do, um, when they're younger and my mother saying, well, I, I don't know, you'll just have to pray about that. And faithfully prayed every night, like bedtime prayers, every night included asking God for a brother or a sister for years, like probably, I don't know, six or seven years. And um, when I was 13, my parents adopted my sister, Joy. And then a year later, they adopted my brother, Jonathan. Those are the two from, from uh, Korea, from South Korea. And then a year later, um, the, there was a sibling group of five from the same adoption agency, um, from Costa Rica, um, that kind of filled in the gaps between me and Joy and Jonathan, who we had adopted as babies. And, um, and so my parents, um, inquired and said, they said yes. Um, so those kids from Costa Rica came home on Christmas day, um, to Omaha where we lived at the time. So, and they all start with J's. We all, we all start with J's. So I don't, I mean, none, none of us ever got our names right then either. Wow. So, Do you remember yeah. pretty clearly all of the adoptions? Very much so. I think the fact that I was 13, um, uh, made a difference in that and um, was very involved in the process of like the the home study that my parents had to do and um, just the, the classes that they had to go to. And when they adopted the kids from Costa Rica, they actually had to go and stay in Costa Rica for two weeks, come home without the children, and then go back once all the visas were ready um, to to pick them up. So, um, I stayed with my, my grandparents came and stayed with us and we helped with the kids and both joy and Jonathan were, um, labeled as special needs. They had some pretty, um, pretty severe physical needs that required surgery. Um, uh, and so we spent a lot of time in hospitals. My parents actually homeschooled me for my junior high years. And a lot of those were spent in and out of hospital rooms with these babies getting surgeries. So what was a neat kind of disabilities did they have? So joy had um, a cleft uh, palate. She had a hole in her heart and her intestines were not um, attached to the outside world correctly. So they called that sort of a central line deformity somewhere um, before she was born. When her uh, birth mother was pregnant with her, there would have been an interruption at some point that would have caused all of those to happen. And John had a cleft lip and cleft palate. 
Um, and he also had um, an ear deformity, and I do not remember the name for it, but he had all of the inner ears, but his outer ears never fully developed. Um, and so he's had multiple surgeries, even now in his 30s, he's had, um, he's had some surgeries. Too. So, can he hear? Uh, with the aid of a hearing aid, he can hear. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, in this family, uh, in addition to um, being just this, this uh, blended family, um, <laughs> there has been um, some tragedy that has that has struck your family, and um, we, I am focusing on just kind of what happens after trauma to your faith. And so, could you just kind of explain to me a little bit about um, Joy and Jeremy, and kind of what happened with? Um, we just take one at a time, but kind of sure. what, what has happened with them? Sure. Um, well, let me, let me actually start with Jeremy just because chronologically, um, uh, I think, well, actually let me back up. Let me, let me not do it that way. Let me start with joy. Although I will say that, um, the tragedy that happened with the two of them was very different. Um, Joy, like I said, Joy had lots of physical difficulties, and we don't really know the exact cause of what um, what happened, but when she was about 19, um, 19 or so, she developed an autoimmune disease um, that really just uh, truly started attacking her entire body. And uh, she ended up having a bone marrow transplant, um, mm. which for someone who is adopted and um, not of, you know, your, your white um, Norwegian <laughs> descent um, was a little bit, is a little challenging when you come to the bone marrow um, registry. And um, I remember them trying to find a match for her, for her, for this transplant. And the adoption agency even went so far as to go hunting for her birth family um, in South Korea to try and find a match for her. It was um, truly amazing to watch the um, community that we had with other adoptive families and the church family that was in, were involved with my parents um, in San Antonio area um, to really rally around the family throughout this whole process. Um, they ended up finding a match stateside. They did not find anyone that was um, a good match from family that they extended family that they were able to locate in South Korea. Um, uh, so they found a match here in the U.S., and uh, we didn't know much about her match other than um, the woman had red hair. And uh, after Joy um, had had that bone marrow transplant and she was recovering very nicely, um, her hair did fall out. And when it grew back in, okay, so you have to picture your, your typical Korean straight hair, very black her hair came in with this red tint and really wavy and curly. It was really kind of, it was kind of fun to see just how science works. Um, 
anyway, she was almost um, reached the point in the bone marrow transplant that they feel safe in saying good. Her immune system has built back up uh, when she developed pneumonia and pretty severely and pretty quickly. And um, I can remember my mom calling um, because I was married at the time. And I remember my mom calling and saying, we've had to take her to the hospital and they're, they're keeping her there because we just can't get her oxygen levels um, stable. And um, she did not leave the hospital for several months until they finally said there is nothing more we can do and um, brought her home to hospice. Um, It was the pneumonia that was the tipping point? It was the pneumonia that her body just could not fight. So, yeah, it was a it was a lot. Um, And, you know, it's interesting. Her name, Joy, she had this like dry sense of humor and um, she she didn't smile a lot. She just had this like she like she was watching and paying attention. But when she smiled, she just lit up and she would light up the room entirely. Like you couldn't help but smile when she when she smiled. And um, because she had spent so much time in the hospital through bone marrow transplant and then um, when she did catch pneumonia, um, the hospital staff were almost like family to us. Mm. Um, uh, My mom uh, packed up and actually lived in the hotel or in the hospital room with Joy. And uh, she would come home maybe once a week to do laundry and then she'd go back up and she'd shower up there and everything. Um, And so it truly did feel like these were, you know, part of your part of your community, but so much so that when, um, when they sent Joy home for hospice, several of her nurses came to visit her at the house. Um, her doctor would stop at the house on his way home every night, um, just to say hi and check in. And I don't know, you know, if you're not familiar with hospice, it's often very a much a we're sending you home and those that were taking care of you in the hospital never see you again. You're, right. you're passed off to new, new nurses and new doctors. And um, so she just made such an impact on these people's lives that um, they really did become like family and at yeah, and her memorial service. Yeah. At her memorial service, I would say probably half of the audience were medical professionals that um, wow. we had come in contact with. Yeah. So she came home for on hospice and how long did she live after that? Um, about three weeks, which they were really shocked at. Um, in fact, I can remember uh, I was still down there when they first uh, sent her home. I had gone to visit. We didn't live near my parents at that time. And I remember one time when the doctor came to visit, he came out of the house and he was just, he emotionally, he had just lost it. And he said, I'm so sorry. I didn't think when we sent her home um, that it would be this long. Like he truly expected that when he sent her home for hospice, she would have days and she lived for probably about three weeks. So, and so were you with her when she passed away? 
I was not, I had gone home at that point, you know, it was kind of, it's kind of an unknown. You never know how long, how long they're going to last. Um, my parents were with her and some of my siblings that were still living at home were with her. Um, but I, I had felt like, um, at the time when I did leave that we all knew, including joy, that this was near the end. Um, and so we were able to say our, what we say, our, our see you laters. It didn't feel like goodbye. I knew Joy's faith was very strong. I truly believed that I would see her in heaven one day. And um, so I don't, I don't know what that says about me, that there's something about um, death that just does not... Um, I don't know. I, I can get emotional about it, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, well, now I know that she is in heaven with a new body and happy. And um, she's with Jesus. She's with my grandmother who she was named after. I'm like, she has no cares anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think faith can, can do that for us, um, can give us a sense of, the the sealators because we do have this um we do have this everlasting hope and uh it it grounds our faith in different in different locations yeah i will say this um there are some people in my um extended family that um their their faith um has this belief attached to it that good things will happen to you if you are doing the will of God. And that if, if sickness or tragedy or things like that happen to you, it is most likely because you are being disobedient or you're not wow. doing what God wants you to do. And Joy's death was particularly hard on those people because um, they could not, they could not point out. I mean, Joy was very bold in her faith. Um, she, she was one that would read her Bible daily. Um, she would pray on a regular basis. Um, she would talk freely about her faith Um she didn't hold bitterness towards anybody. And so when she got so sick and then eventually died, those family members that held that belief really were um, kind of at a crisis point. Like they didn't understand why that would happen to her. Um, she, she passed away shortly after she turned 21. Um, so, so young and, and without, sort of any explanation as to why. Um, and so I've, I have watched over the years them very much struggle with trying to make that fit what they believed about God. Yeah. That, that faith belief that it is sin or it is something that we do that controls the outcome of what God wants is can be particularly damaging for that very reason, because mm -hmm. it feels like we hold the seat of 
of power and influence on what happens. Yeah. And it can be very, can create that crisis. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about, about Jeremy. So Jeremy was um, one of my siblings that came from Costa Rica. Um, he was eight when um, he was adopted. So he was older. He had lots of memories of um, his life in Costa Rica, which um, was really, really hard. Um, yeah. It was a sibling group of five. They all had the same mother, different fathers. And um, actually, the whatever would be like child protective services in Costa Rica had actually removed the these five children from their mother twice um, because of just not proper care. And when my parents adopted them, they were then living in an orphanage. Um, so, so how old was the oldest and youngest when they were adopted? Uh, 12 and 2. Okay. So the oldest was 12, the youngest was 2. Um, and I would say they've all had some struggles of adjustment. I think any adopted child, like I was adopted at three weeks and I think I still have some of those, like um, those, some of those feelings of, I was unwanted at one point. And um, I mean, you and I have even talked about, I have a hard time eating leftovers and that's weird, but I seriously think that has something to do with some of the adoption brain. Um, So much of our our emotional being is formed in utero, right? And so that sense of being wanted, being cared for, being loved, that that formation process begins before we're even born. And so we really, we really embody so much of what we were carried with no matter how we were, how we were born. And it doesn't just start right at birth. Right. Right. And even those early age, you know, like the zero to zero to three age, we know so much attachment there. And so for some of these children that are adopted when they're older, there's so much catch up to happen. Right. Um, and, and their own trauma, um, which is, that's their own story. You know, I can't tell their story, but they, they each have trauma that they've experienced. On their right. Own so Jeremy, by eight years old, he, he had memories of his mother, had memories mm-hmm. of Costa Rica. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and interestingly enough, like I was a sophomore in high school when they were adopted. And, um, and then I went off to college a few years later. So my time with these siblings was very short. Yeah. Um, but what I can tell you about Jeremy is he had the biggest heart, the biggest giggle. Um, he, I have memories of him carrying my children um, when they were little, like any uncle would, you know, on his shoulders, playing with them, horsing around with them. He was just mm. fun and fun loving and hardworking. Um, they came to the house, to my house once, and uh, he cleaned my oven. Like it sparkled, like it was brand new from the store. Um, and he just, he saw that it was dirty and wanted to clean it and asked me for cleaner. And I was like, oh, sure, you know, here you go. But he was a really hard, hard huh. worker. And um, I, 
you know, thought that was a lot of fun. Um, and he was in his teens at that point, you know, he was just, um, he was a good, he was a good uncle. He was a good uncle to kids. Um, when he was, um, in his late teens, I think he was really struggling with understanding his place. I think a lot of teens go through that, but I think when you add some of the, the trauma, um, that he had experienced and, um, just a lot sorting of sorting out, um, plus, I think there is, um, I think we have, have really discovered that there is some mental illness component genetically, um, part of that family. Um, really honestly, part of our family, because I would say I, (laughs) I have struggled with depression and I'm not genetically connected to them in any way. Um, but there was something about Jeremy, that he just didn't see hope for what his future might look like. Um, he struggled with school. Um, he, he thought about, um, enlisting in the Navy, Mm -hmm. um, but didn't, didn't make the, the cut to be, um, and so I think there was just a lot that he just was unsure of. And, um, one day he just took his own, took his own life, just could not see any, um, any outcome and no, no note, no, no explanation. Um, none of my siblings in any conversations with them had any indication that that was going to occur. My parents didn't know. It seemed to be um, just out of nowhere. And how old was he? He was 18. He was 18. He was 18. Yeah. So did the family know that he was struggling with um, depression? I do not think they would have said he was struggling with depression. I think um, he, I think he kept a lot of the emotions to himself. I think family wise would have said he's just struggling with what he wants to do now that he's 18. And um, does he want to go to school? Does he want to do the Navy? Does he want to work? Like just, he just was unsure. I think that is what, everybody sort of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you look back, of course, you can see signs of depression, you can see the anxiety. Um, and also keep in mind, that would have been, now you're making me do math, that would have been uh, 20 years ago. And so even talking about depression and anxiety was not as prevalent as we talk about it now. Right. Right. We've come a long ways in opening up that conversation and making it permissible to to talk about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when he died, what was your um what was your understanding about faith and suicide? Because I've been taught I've been taught many different things about how faith integrates with suicide. And I'm just curious what what your belief system was then. Um, well, honestly, I think uh, on a on a positive side for those of us that were grieving, 
Um, one, we all could remember very clearly a point in Jeremy's life when he was younger, where he had said, I want Jesus to be my savior. I want him um, to be part of my life. Um, and for my beliefs about faith and suicide, um, I truly believe that once you have asked Jesus to be your savior, that there is nothing that that changes that, including suicide. Now, I know that there's um, some beliefs that say that, that that would be sort of like an unpardonable sin or, right. you know, that would be something that would cancel anything you had done previously. Um, that's not what, what I was raised to believe. Um, I'll be honest, there's part of me sometimes that questions like, okay, is that just because that's what we want to believe, you know, Right. because we've experienced it? I don't know, but I also don't pretend to try and figure it out. Like that's something we won't, we won't ever know until we're in heaven and can, can ask. <laughs> so right. um, I think we held very, we were first of all, so much in shock that I think we just held very tightly to the fact that we could remember the time when he said he he accepted Jesus and and turned that into well we will see him one day and then maybe ask him why right and turn that think, into hope right right I think there was still though a lot of um, a lot of guilt that a lot of us felt like I mean even for me I didn't live near home. Um, and so there was like this, oh, what if I would have called more often? Like, what if I would have checked in more often? And um, it was just a point where you just kind of had to say, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know to do differently. Because right. how old were you at that point? Oh, now you're making me do my own math. Um, I was about 26. Okay. 20, 26. Yeah. Been 26. Okay. And at the time when that happened, I was pregnant with my third child. Um, and I actually ended up going to my doctor because I couldn't sleep. Um, I was like, I, I don't know what I can do, but I know for this health of this child that I'm carrying, I need to sleep. And the grief was so strong that uh, it was affecting my sleep. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, and, and for years there would be weird things like driving down the road and there'd be, you know, graffiti on the overpass and it would be like Jeremy with a heart around it. And you'd be like, okay, first of all, who does that with graffiti, you know, um, that would totally just catch this pit in my stomach and I'd almost have to pull over. I mean, I remember that particular instance, I almost had to pull over to the shoulder of the road because it, it was so jarring. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Was the grief different for joy than it was for Jeremy? Yeah. Jeremy's grief was so um, because the event was so unexpected and so sudden there were so many questions afterwards, like why, like um, what did we miss, and um, and how do we deal with this? And and interestingly enough, um, for me, 
my, my go-to was to really dig deep into my church family at that time. Um, we had a very close group of also young marrieds that had lots of children. It was uh, kind of obscene, the number of children that we had in this, this small group of people, but they were the ones that um, we would just, we'd pray together we'd, um, we'd support each other. We'd, we'd swap kids. So I'd be like, I need, I need a nap. And somebody would take, take my kids and, and just let, let me grieve. Mm -hmm. But with joy, it was such a long drawn out process, um, that there was more of almost more of an expectation, like, oh, she's fought this battle and, she's tired and it's time for him, her to, to rest. And mm-hmm. so um, the grief process after joy was lots of sadness, but also almost, almost a gratitude that she was not suffering. Mm-hmm. So. so what you're describing is that, that faith has given you an anchor in the midst of kind of the storm of, of grief. Is that, is it, is that accurate? Absolutely. I mean, I would say, um, like I said, I've watched some family members question their faith in the midst of this. Um, but for me personally, it is, my faith is really what allowed me to get through the grieving process and, and not completely fall apart. Mm. Um, It gave me hope. Some might say it's this like, you know, I don't know, kind of a Pollyanna hope, like Jen, you make it sound like it's not all that bad. Um, There are a lot of tears. There are still tears. Now I was going through some pictures the other day and came across a picture of joy and there are still tears of sadness. There's still that, that loss. Um, you know, I said, Jeremy was, was 20 years ago. And that child that I was pregnant with is about to turn 20. And it made me realize that he is now older than his uncle that he never got to meet. Mm. So it's things like that, that give me pause but it has never um, it has never gone to a point where I have have questioned God. Um, I've questioned why did this have to happen, but at the same time said, "Well, God, you know, I know I'm not going to know that answer." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think to trust in the sovereignty or the omniscience, the all knowing of God, takes a huge leap of faith, but that's kind of the substance of what faith is, right? Trusting what we, what we can't really grasp in our minds and our finite selves. I remember too, for probably a good two years after Jeremy passed away, um, my husband and I would have these conversations and we would just say, you know, what, what is the point? Like we know the verse that says that God will work all things together for good. And so we'd be like, God, how can any good <laughs> come from this? It is so, um, so ugly and, and hurtful and um, just so uncertain. How can any good come from that? And it was probably about three years later when I had a good friend whose brother 
committed suicide. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, I know what she's feeling. Mm-hmm. And just this last summer, I had a coworker who's um, had a family member commit suicide. And to be able to call them and say, I know. And um, just the, the unknown. I mean, I'll get emotional about it now because mm-hmm. just those emotions, you're like, I can't understand it. And to be able to, to pray through it with them and, and just say, it's okay to say, I don't get it. I don't understand. Um, and to let them know that, you know, here I am 20 years later and it'll still get me. And, and it's okay that you're allowed to feel that. And uh, so I can see, and I don't even, I don't even want to call it good, but I can see where God has used that event um, to allow me to be a comfort to others. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is always a side, um, that is a side uh, blessing or, um, I hate hesitate to use the word benefit, but that is one of the side effects that we have is to be able to know how to how to comfort those who are going through the same circumstances. And so it's what, like a club that you don't really want to be part of, but you're right, a part of. <laughs> right. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And and I feel that way after my I lost my sister six years ago. And I feel that way that I have that that deepening understanding of where people, people are. So, so just kind of as we conclude, how would you say um, the deaths um, impacted your faith? We've kind of, we've kind of talked about it, but could you kind of summarize how those tragedies in your life have kind of globally impacted your faith? Um, I think, I think, sort of the, you know, what we just touched on being able to say that God works all things together for good. Um, to me, that is the good and the bad, um, whether it is death of siblings, whether it's loss of job, whether it's um, dealing with depression. I mean, I can, I can name several significant things in um, my life, but I think they all point back to um, seeing God's glory in them, mm-hmm. um, you know, with joy, seeing the impact and all of the people that um, she pointed towards Jesus, um, knowing that they saw a little bit of that joy um, and, and a little piece of Jesus's love. I think it is a reminder to me that even in these tragic moments, you have an opportunity to show what Jesus is like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good summary. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing about your family. And um, I Appreciate you letting me get to know Joy and Jeremy a little bit. We've never had this extent of a conver- extensive of a conversation about them, so I appreciate that. So, absolutely, it's. I think um, 
while hard, obviously, I mean, you got me to cry, man, man, I was trying hard not to. Um, I think remembering those things is also really important. Um, you know, we, we celebrate Jeremy's life every March 15th. That was the day he died. And we mark it every year, um, usually with a fun meal of, you know, Chinese food or pizza, because those were some of his favorites. Um, Joy loved butterflies. And so I have, um, uh, you know, Disney has hidden Mickeys. I have hidden butterflies around my house. Like you don't walk in my house and go, whoa, this is a butterfly house. But there's little ones all around that I use to remember her by. Um, And I think um, sharing this today is, uh, it's good for the soul. It's good. For good. Soul. Good. Well, I love you. And, um, it's always great to talk to you. I love you too. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the post-traumatic faith podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google podcast today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, jillreilly.author and Twitter, jillreillyauthor. To contact Jill, email jill at jillreilly.org.